Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Jude Samulski about his work utilizing the adeno-associated virus vector to deliver gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Dr. Samulski is co-founder, president, and CSO of Asclepios Biopharmaceutical, professor of pharmacology at UNC School of Medicine, and past director of the University of North Carolina's Gene Therapy Center. Welcome, Dr. Samulski. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I would love to start with discussing how you first got involved in gene therapy and utilizing the AAV vector. From what I understand, it's been quite a lengthy journey. Yeah, I think these get lost um, over time when people realize how um, long it's taken to bring something to fruition when, when you start on de novo. But back in the late 70s, I was a graduate student in the um, Department of Immunology and Microbiology at the University of Florida. And I was fortunate enough to work for a brilliant uh, new faculty named Nick Muzichka, who just came out of John Hopkins where the Nobel Prize was given to his mentor, Dan Nathan. And um, if you're in the science community, uh, you realize when they acknowledge someone for the Nobel Prize, it's typically the people in the lab that have done the work, and everybody wants to confiscate that talent and bring it so that they can have the next um, innovations taking place in their home department. And Nick was uh, moving from Hopkins to Florida, and I was his first student. And we had many, many conversations about how would we deliver genes back to cells. It wasn't patients at that point in time, it was cells. And we obviously knew that it was like a form of molecular surgery, and therefore you needed molecular delivery tools to make it work. And that immediately turned to viruses. Viruses were the molecular surgeons um, that could easily put genetic information inside the cells. And so Nick came with the hypothesis and the premise of achieving this. And I was uh, the student that drank the Kool-Aid and 42 years later is still trying to complete his thesis of making a viral vector and treating genetic diseases. But it really was a privilege to be part of a team that basically spearheaded I would say, a, a new medicine, basically a new form of molecular medicine. Because this has been such a long process, how have you managed to stay the course and stay with the science? Well, that's a very uh, interesting and tough question. It, 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 it weeds a little bit of personality and uh, also the excitement of the field. So realize I'm one of nine children and I have eight brothers. So you had to be stubborn and willing to fight uh, for your your piece of the candy bar. And so um, determination was uh, easy <laughs> growing up in that type of setting. <clears throat> All my older brothers are basically scientists, PhDs, and so forth. And my one sister has a, a PhD in classical piano. So I was surrounded by that type of commitment. Um, but when you get into the science that we were doing at that point in time, um, realize what people associate with Star Wars. I came from the generation that associated with Star Trek. And to be able to do something, go where no man's gone before, and that type of mantra was what we were living in the laboratory. And that was 
trying to design a moonshot? How do you build something that's going to take you somewhere that no one's been before? And so there was a tremendous commitment based on the excitement. And then there was just a gritty determination to not let go. And, uh, you know, that persistent, I think, is true of anyone who's in the field of science. They, they almost make a commitment like a marriage that this is what they're going to do for the rest of their life. And um, I've been basically running that marathon since those early days and had the, um, the fortune to be around some extremely talented people along the way that's uh, been a benefit across the board. So recently, preliminary results were published by Pfizer from a small gene therapy trial for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And uh, they're scheduling a larger trial for later this year. And that work originated from the work that you have done and from AskBio. You used an AAV vector to carry a healthy copy of the dystrophin gene, which was injected into muscle cells and replaced the non-working cell for people with DMD. Can you tell me a little bit about the mechanisms of that and the evolution of that work journey? Yes, sure. And um, this is a great opportunity to actually finally acknowledge the individuals that <clears throat> had spearheaded this. So I was at the University of Pittsburgh in my first faculty position when we were starting a full court press on the vector development aspects. And I was fortunate enough to have an extremely talented uh, graduate student named Zhao Zhao who came into the lab and has continued to be my collaborator over these 42 years. And Zhao was one of these ingenious individuals that there was no boundary. And so what he was able to do in that setting was we were making AAV vectors and putting in what's called reporter genes so that if the virus went into a cell, it would turn the cell a color so you knew that it had it had uh, made it to that location. And that was a confirmation that the delivery process was working. And what Zhao was able to do was take a reporter gene that turned cells blue, and when he put it in the muscle of a mouse, he was able to show that that muscle turned blue. And so at that juncture, we got excited because we said, oh my gosh, you know, if we can put genes into the muscle, there's an opportunity to go back and maybe fix genes that aren't working. And so Zhao basically made a commitment at that point and continues to focus only on muscle disorders like limb girdle, DMD, and so forth, and knew enough about the vectoring from being in the lab of what were the limitations. And so one thing you need to appreciate, Danny, is that the Duchenne muscular dystrophy gene is the largest gene in the human genome. And AAV is probably the smallest vector virus that's known. So you have a gene that's basically 14,000 nucleotides from the beginning to the end, and you have a virus that will only carry 5,000. So you're left with which third of this gene do I try to package and put back into a patient to make it work? And so that was a puzzle that was basically a chess game that Zhao initiated where he was trying different segments and building basically synthetic um, mini dystrophin genes. And Zhao was very clever because what he was able to do was there's another form of this of a dystrophin gene called Becker um, dystrophin. And Becker is a milder form of the disease. And what happens in Becker patients 
is that that very, very large RNA that makes the gene, makes the protein, the 14,000 nucleotide, has been deleted to something smaller. And this took place in the patient's genome, but they still make a protein, and that protein works to some degree. And so what Zhao was doing was looking at Becker patients that were living well into their 60s and had a mild form of muscle disease. And he made the argument that if there's one small enough that still makes the muscle work, then I'll build my synthetic dystrophin gene to look like that, and it will also fit into the AAV vector. And in doing so, what he was doing is basically saying, if you have a terminal disease with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, what I'm going to do is give you a mini miniature form of that gene that will transfer you from being a Duchenne patient to a Becker patient. But not just a Becker patient with the disease, a Becker patient with a mild, mild form of the disease. So we're not curing them or correcting them. We're shifting them from a terminal uh, disorder to a manageable um, disorder. And Zhao was able to uh, generate compelling data that, that worked. And as in most of these uh, settings, there was an animal model that carried the same disease, the mouse model. And he was able to, again, take the same vector that had the gene that turned the muscle blue and substitute it for the mini dystrophin gene. And then he went into the mouse that didn't carry the dystrophin gene. And he was able to show that when he put it back in that muscle, these animals began to perform much, much better than their littermates that were not treated. And it was the first biological data saying this could possibly work in humans if we could scale it up and take it to the level that's needed. And so that aspect of the studies that started in 1986 at Pittsburgh uh, launched the effort that's been going on until the trial that now uh, you've heard about being carried out by Pfizer. And so not to lose the continuity of your original question, when the mini gene was made and the vector was uh, generated, uh, we were able to convince ourselves that we could take mice that would normally die and keep them alive by putting this into their body. And so you're left with this really taxing question. If you look at a human or any animal, you see muscle is constitutes the entire frame of that animal. And so the real question is, how do you get it to all of those muscles? Uh, you don't want to take a needle and stick it in the cheek muscle and then stick it in the hip muscle and stick it in the leg. You want something that can kind of get there on its own. And so we use the bloodstream like the uh, interstate system, that once you add the virus to the bloodstream, it flows automatically throughout the entire body and we had to design the vector so that while it was running through the tube of the blood vessel, it had the ability to get across and go into the muscle cells and then deliver the payload. So there was a lot of what we would call uh, engineering that was involved. And that engineering, if you wanted to think about it in a more layman's term, it's like putting a zip code on the envelope so it got to the right location and it didn't just circulate around and around or go to the wrong target tissue. And that's where the effort over a period of time of trying to find the right zip code and the right formulation and things like that have been done 
And then again, Zhao was uh, successful in that there is a canine model of the disease, which if you can imagine, moves from a mouse, which is about 30 grams, to um, be maybe an animal model that's about the size of a toddler. And now you're getting into the real parameters of how much does it take to make a dog walk or be healthy? And are all of the dynamics of delivering the therapeutic drug in that model similar or identical to what was happening in the mouse? So you're, you're basically stepping up in um, significant levels to validate the technology. And Zhao was successful again in showing that he could rescue um, these dogs. In fact, one dog named Jelly um, lived out over eight years um, based on Zhao's therapeutic treatment. So we knew there was a long-term effect from delivering the gene back into the animal. We knew there was a safety component attached to that long-term effect. And we knew there was a biological rescue of that um, delivery of that gene. So there were three boxes that we could check off and say, we are feeling more and more comfortable and confident that if we put this in the patient, we should get these type of responses. One of the things that I always had as a saying in our lab was the guys that were producing Vector um, was if, if you're not willing to put it in your own kid, don't make it to, to give to someone else. And so that forced a lot of um, the collaborators and individuals that helped us on this journey realize the commitment we were making, that this was not going to be a mouse study or a dog, this was going to be someone's child. And at that level, we really had to understand what we were doing with complete confidence that there was a, almost a zero risk associated with it based on what we knew. And um, it, was a, it was a very exhilarating, challenging, and sometimes despairing effort because resources are always what's limiting, not the ideas or the willingness to do the science. So, I'm sure the data is still ongoing, but at, at this point, do we know how long these effects last for or how slow, how much they slow the disease progression? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And it's typically the first one that's asked either by the clinician who's going to do the study or the parents who are going to put their kid in it. And more importantly, even the FDA, they want to understand the drug kinetics and the, you know, the viability. And if you think about various types of drugs, there's some that you take every day. There's some that are in a patch that elude over time. And so what we're basically doing is we're putting back a piece of genetic material. And one way to think about this, Danny, is like if you have a sign and the sign has lights in it and then it tells you a message and the light bulb is burnt down, we're basically replacing that light bulb so the message comes back to clarity. And so as long as the sign's gonna be there, which will be equivalent to the cell, uh, that message should function um, for the rest of the life of the cell. And the animal data said that it lasted for the life of a mouse, but the mouse typically lives 18 to 24 months, so that's about two years. Um, the dog model said it lasted for the life of the dog, and a large dog's typically about eight to 10 years, and we had eight and a half to nine with jelly. Um, some animal studies, not by us, but others and monkeys were showing that it was lasting for 13 to 15 years. And so it really was coming down to 
if you started an experiment, what model were you using and how long did that model live um, to confirm the um, longevity of the therapeutic? And to this date, um, you know, in humans, there's data with the hemophilia gene out over 10 years, suggesting that if the cell's there like the signs, the gene is like the light bulb, it's functioning and it will more than likely function until the cell dies. And what's interesting about DMD is when you lose those muscle cells, we're not able to bring them back. So the older the patient is, the fewer muscle that we're rescuing or protecting. And so clearly uh, the younger patients uh, stand the benefit the most. And um, the trial that we initiated at Pfizer ended up uh, taking over was using the, a range of about seven to nine-year-olds, uh, which are going through that growth curve and going through uh, phases where the muscles, if they don't grow and are, are lost, then you begin to see problem with amylation, ambulatory, and they're going to wheelchairs and things like that. So it was a tipping point where if you put in the gene and it would work, you would see, hey, they didn't go into a wheelchair and they were scheduled to go into a wheelchair, so it looks like it's working. But clearly, the younger the patient is where there's normal and healthy young muscle, that's what you want to rescue. When we look at our older patients who we don't want to at any um, level uh, leave behind, um, they're primarily in wheelchairs. Uh, they're working with uh, their limbs, their upper limbs, and they continue to uh, progress down a path where it's either the diaphragm or the heart that are the, the two um, tissues that may end up compromising their ability. And so um, we have and continue to focus on developing vectors that primarily only go into the heart or only into the heart and the diaphragm so that these older patients, while they may have missed the window of this new technology, are not um, totally um, excluded from the benefit of this uh, gene delivery. Earlier you mentioned the intricacies and the challenges of the engineering side. And I'm curious to get your perspective on how you think that can be extrapolated to other muscular dystrophies or other genetic diseases, understanding what worked and what the challenges were for engineering this particular treatment and how we can use that going forward? So that's a really good question. And what you're, what you're actually pointing to is one of those parameters where one begins to say, it's just a learning curve that when you do it once, you learn and you can add on and get faster and quicker and whatever. And that's exactly what's happening. If you think about this, um, this journey, if you take it in its totality, has been about 42 years. If you take it from when Zhao started the experiment in 1986, then you're talking about 30 or so years. If you now look at the next target that he's going after, which is limb girdle, this is like a two to three year project and we're getting ready to go back into the clinic. So almost by a, a, a factor of 10, we're reducing the time it's taking because of the experience factor that's been learned over that initial uh, effort. In some ways of thinking about this, it's like, you know, you can always go back in history and say, oh, Lewis and Clark found, you know, the Northwest Passage, and then that turned into the Oregon Trail, and now you're on Interstate 84 and you're blazing, you know, across with no hesitation. These things get honed to be more efficient 
the same way um, that description of what's happened with physical transportation. And we're seeing this happen by leaps and bounds now because the early success in this field is now drawing attention, not just from the um, pharmaceutical companies, but from investors. And so once you can get a steady source of resources coming into a space, you can see innovation go much, much quicker. Uh, we lived in a world where if you had an idea, you had to put it on paper, then you had to stop and go in the lab and generate that result. And then you had to go and publish that paper. And then you had to write a grant to get funding to support the next idea. And now you have groups that are just coming up with ideas and suggestions and groups that are just working on validating those things and other groups that are implementing them and taking them to the clinic. So instead of running the marathon, it's more like a relay where you're handing off the baton on each leg and it goes much, much, much faster. I'd be curious to get your perspective on where you see the landscape of gene therapy now. I mean, for 25 years, you were the director of the UNC Gene Therapy Center been working in this space for a long time. Where do you see us now and in the future? I'm very, very optimistic that we're at the beginning of a, a, a long journey. And if you look back at it from different pair of eyes, you know, we are genetic um, beings. And it's often curious to me that embedded in our chromosomes was the curiosity to figure out who we were to the level that we're now going back and genetically modifying who we are when we see mistakes that have been not made, not by our choice, but just by um, the laws of, of biology. And so when you think about that, you can start to imagine where can you go with this? Well, obviously the genetic diseases of which there's uh, argued to be 7,000 are the likely targets of where you would develop this technology. But when you start to look at complex diseases like diabetes and obesity and congestive heart failure, you can see that those diseases are sometimes impacted by behavior, epigenetics, what the environment that you're in, and they're not something that was passed down from generation to generation, but it could be an environmental thing. And so they're, they're more complex, and it means that instead of a light bulb that you're changing, you're putting in lots of circuitry and that circuitry is going to make sure the message is very clear. And so we're probably going to do a stepwise transition from single gene um, genetic defects to complex diseases. And then eventually you may see this get to a point where you say, um, if you, in fact, it's a fact today that if you live long enough, you will end up with Parkinson's disease just by the natural degeneration. You may end up saying, we're going to protect those cells from dying normally over time by reostatting the genes that are going to keep them healthy to last longer. And I think you can see just by the number of people that are reaching the centurion number of the hundred and older that we're moving down a path of where the average age of the lifespan around the world was 40 in the U.S. and Japan and others, we, we doubled, doubled that time. And this medicine is, has the potential to not just let you live longer, but the quality of life that you're going to have is going to be a better quality. And so I think it has significant impact. How it will happen, I think the um, viruses that we started with 
are going to look more like the old cell phones that were about the size of a shoebox. And eventually, some of them will be making a super thin razor cell phone type delivery system that may work by principles that were derived from the viruses, but may have nothing to do with viruses anymore. And this is moving towards what people refer to as synthetic delivery systems or biological nanoparticles, where they can mimic everything about these evolutionary uh, delivery systems, but make them all totally synthetic. Uh, we'll probably get to that point as this field continues to progress. And each time a roadblock is identified, there's a, a cadre of colleagues that are trying to figure out what's the best way. Do we go over? Do we go around? Do we go through? Do we go under? And when they propose those solutions, they typically get implemented into development of new delivery systems. It's going to be exciting. It's Star Trek's transition to Star Wars in some ways. Before I let you go, what are you working on now that is really exciting to you or that you think um, has great implications? The field has two significant problems that is plaguing it at the moment, and that is, Danny, you, me, and everyone else out there normally gets exposed to viruses when we're toddlers and go to daycare and stuff like that. And so if you get exposed to the virus that we're using as a, a molecular FedEx truck or a delivery system, and if your body had an immune response that says, I'm now making antibodies, and if I see this again, I'm going to stop it from coming into the cell, we technically don't know how to deliver the therapeutic to that individual because he naturally is resistant. So this is the exact opposite of what we're trying to do with the COVID-19. We're trying to vaccinate you so you make antibodies so if it shows up again, your body will stop it. We're now trying to figure out how do we take the individuals that have been exposed to AAV naturally, have antibodies to it, have a genetic disease, we have an answer to give them, but we can't give it to them because their body's going to fight the therapy. And so we have been focusing primarily on um, what we call stealthing the virus, where we are engineering it so the immune system can't see it, where it looks very much like the AAV, but it doesn't look enough like it that the immune system's going to stop it at the gate and keep it from entering. And so we're putting a lot of energy into that because the last thing you want to hear as a parent is that there's a cure for your child, but your child has immunity against the, the vector and therefore you can't get the therapy. And so I think there's a mad rush and push by most of the people who have been in this field for the longest, longest time that we're obligated to ensure that this technology gets to um, those patients. And there are other creative ways that people are trying to uh, address that issue. And this is what we're focusing on at the moment, which, and we call it repeat administration or the ability to get around the neutralizing antibodies for first time administration. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, Dr. Samolsky is a co-founder of Asclepios Biopharmaceutical, professor of pharmacology at the UNC School of Medicine. For more information about our PharmaTalk radio podcast, go to theconferenceforum.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Samolsky. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you again for the opportunity.